Welcome to the latest edition of the podcast series, The Banker's Plumber, Lessons Learned. What's up in banking? What's changing? What has gone wrong? What is going right? Today, the focus is on something I'm calling the consortium conundrum. Banks want to and need to become more efficient, produce the same for less or more for the same. Some improvement steps they can take on their own. Only some, though. A very large part of the cost base for banks is driven by the need to collaborate with other market participants. Just quickly before we get into the details of this week's podcast, a word of thanks for the sponsor of this podcast, the Realization Group in London. They're a financial services and fintech marketing agency. I've worked closely with them for the past couple of years. Colin Slight and the team there talk about being visible, being found and being successful. Well, today, a slight variation on the theme will be heard. I hope that's still of interest. And I thank Colin and the team for their support. Let's get going. To help explain the picture, I'm delighted to have as a guest today, James Maxfield. James is a managing director at Ascendant Strategy. James is a veteran of the operational side of wholesale banking. He's a frequent and thoughtful commentator on the future of banking. So James, thanks for joining me. As a starter question, what can banks do on their own to achieve internal efficiency? What's not being done that could be done? Well, firstly, morning, Olaf, and, and thanks for inviting me onto the show. Uh, quite pleased to be here, and thanks for the kind intro. So I would say the probably the first step for all organisations should be really to take a step back and start to take a long look and try and really understand and decompose the complexity that sits within what's typically referred to as a middle and back office. Unfortunately, a lot of this area is assumed to be a black box by, by senior leadership. And, and by senior leadership, I probably mean the C-level within organisations. And some of the terminology, such as back office, really kind of dumbs down the importance and actually a lot of the complexity that sits in there. But as we know, we look across a lot of some of the industry commentators for a lot of organisations, almost 35% of their revenues are associated with support for this post-trade process. So it's a significant number and it's a significant cost-trade, but it's often uh, misunderstood or not understood in enough detail. Organisations should, as a start point, be really looking to try and understand the real drivers of that cost, being able to bring together what are quite often fragmented pieces of financial data in an organisation how many people do I have in a process? What's the technology cost of supporting that, that process? What perhaps are some of the hosting and market infrastructure considerations that should be coming together within that within the day-to-day operations? How much does that function cost to change? You know, how much am I spending on perhaps mandatory or regulatory-driven change? All of these are, whilst quite conceptually obvious data points, often quite challenging for organisations to pull together and as a very as an initial entry point into any transformation in this area, you know, that's typically what we would always see as a start point. And as organizations start to do that, they start to find some quite interesting data points in there, which can start to point them towards solutions or options to move forward. You know, as one example, quite often we see in organizations a significant height, a significant proportion of that cost is people-driven. You know, that could be up to 60, 70% of the cost base or processes is really driven by the amount of people in there. That, that should be sparking a question around how much automation really sits in this process? How standardized is it? 
And actually, have we got more work to do to standardise that process? Or perhaps are there opportunities to leverage market infrastructure to enable us to reduce the number of people that we've got supporting that process and improve levels of automation and reduce cost? Okay, so that, that gets to this total cost of ownership thing that we were talking about just before we um, started recording this part, that quite often the banks don't know what the total cost of ownership of something is. I know one of the trends for at least the last 10 or 15 years is outsourcing and nearshoring. It, it has been always the, the go-to solution for reducing cost, but as far as I can see, that hasn't always necessarily been successful. Quite often you get cheap outsourced chaos. I don't know what your experience has been around that. Yeah, I mean, I would say I would say mixed, Olaf, actually. So I, I can think, you know, I've been involved with organisations where a, a, an offshored model has been a, a very positive addition to the overall operating model and has been able to bring benefits of capacity you know, scale just due to the amount of people that can come into the process quite quickly and, and, and a big pool of very well-educated people. So I've seen it work very well, but I would echo your comments. I've also seen it work quite poorly. And quite often what differentiates the two is where the organisations maybe been too quick to move a process without perhaps understanding it. And obviously when that process is moved, you quite often end up with uh, a, a conceptual vision of being able to standardize really what you have offshore and the reality is it doesn't work so we've probably all heard the phrase you know don't move broken processes when you're talking about these types of uh, offshoring activities unfortunately time to market or perhaps just cost pressures have forced a lot of organizations to do that and, and when we think about typically where do those types of offshore models work quite well and that could be whether they are uh Members of, uh, sorry, they could be members of an organisation who just happen to be in a near shore or far shore location, you know, the concept of a captive, or perhaps where you're maybe using a third party provider. Where those models quite work quite well is you're able to move standardised processes to them. You're able to have the benefits of capacity and scale that that region can give you. And you can then start to bring smart people to those processes who are able to start being quite clever around digitalisation or automation. And when we, we look at the experience, perhaps, of other, uh, other industries, let's maybe think about loans or insurance, where typically there's, there's, there's probably quite a, a high degree of standardisation, you can really see that model being effective. Um, that doesn't, unfortunately, happen in a lot, of, uh, a lot of the capital market sector. What we typically still tend to see is this concept of just movement of broken processes. And really what that means is you never really fix the process process is normally then too far away from the stakeholders you need to influence to try and fix it and actually you effectively then get stuck with the same set of broken processes but you just move them further away and I think as we probably all saw during the pandemic you know the, the focus on supply chain risk that is now becoming a very common theme from certainly regulators across the globe is going to make that quite challenging I think for some organizations to manage going forward yeah that might actually help them now a step beyond outsourcing is the idea of a joint service center or a shared operation perhaps even moving to using a common it platform i know you've looked more than once at efforts by banks to do this hasn't really had a lot of success whether it's the business case not stacking up or is this 
is it some willingness to actually pull the trigger and say, yep, we'll, we'll go to that shared model? Yeah, and again, I think it probably comes back to my earlier point, Olaf, there's, a, there's an un, unfortunate oversimplification of a lot of these back office processes that at maybe a senior management level, it becomes very obvious to say, well, why don't we just move it and run the process with other uh, participants where there's kind of clearly no USP associated with processing. Um, and I, I think I can probably talk from experience of being inside a bank trying to do this and trying to generate one of these one of these uh, shared service functions and also actually from working with a vendor. So I, I, I'm probably privileged from being able to see both sides. And I'd say there's probably kind of three key themes, I think, which is why it's been quite challenging. I think the first one is it's very hard to bring a kind of a joint service center or a, a managed service function on a common IT platform when everybody seems to process what looks like a fairly basic process in completely different ways. And I know you will have seen this from your experience. So, you know, how one bank will process something such as a UK settlement will be very different from another bank, which will be very different from another bank. So again, whilst software sometimes. That's right. That, that's exactly it. And and where, you know, what looks, you know, what, what should be a crest settlement for all of them actually looks and feels very different. And that can make the ability to offer that service very hard where everybody's doing what looks like the same thing in a very different way. Um, and you can imagine process variation creeps in, change requests creep in, and all of a sudden that becomes quite an expensive model to, to operate. I think the challenge then for the managed service provider is that where you're running lots of different bespoke processes mm -hmm. all in a slightly different way, that becomes very hard to mutualise and sell to other people the main reason that you're probably not going to be able to buy bank A's process because your process works differently. So from a vendor perspective, the economics around operating that type of model become quite challenging because clearly you're not able to get the economies of scale of doing the same thing for multiple participants. What you end up trying to do is different things for multiple participants on the same platform. Um, I think the second part of maybe where the challenge has come from, and I would certainly say this, you know, probably early middle part of the last decade was banks were very, uh, very proud, quite rightly, of their in-house tech that they built over the last 20 years. But actually, the reality is when you now start to mark to market a lot of that technology to the level of innovation that we've seen in the fintech space over the last five years, it's not actually very good. It doesn't actually stack up very well. So I would take collateral management as one example. You know, that area of the industry has had a significant amount of attractive of, uh, investment over the last kind of five to 10 years. Um, and actually, what you now see from the vendor landscape is quite rich, quite cheap, uh, quite high innovative, sorry, um, quite innovative technology um, that when you compare it to an in-house system, it, it just doesn't really stack up. So, and, and the reason for why this is relevant, Olaf, is when you're then trying to sell that in-house system to perhaps a customer who's been used to seeing all of these other different packages that the fintechs are providing, Clearly, that's not a very attractive proposition. Um, you can maybe try and make that attractive by offering at a really, really low cost. But actually, again, you know, that's not necessarily a going to be a, a, a kind of a way to go to market with effectively what should be an innovative and cheaper kind of managed service for an organisation. So I think the I think that level of competition in-house versus street makes it quite difficult. Um, and then I think the final part is I would say a lot of banks are don't have the experience of operating in this type of supply chain model and 
And that actually makes them, uh, I would say in some respects, actually quite immature, not at a personal level, at an organisation level, around how they go into a lot of these negotiations. So where their start point has to be, it must be 40% cheaper than my current run cost of depreciated quite legacy kit, which as you know, is probably quite cheap and perhaps maybe quite a heavily offshore operating model. Um, in the absence of being able to move on to that standardised way of processing I referred to earlier, um, that becomes very, very hard for vendor to compete with. So if you're looking at your business case quite basically to your earlier point, you know, does the business case stack up? At a very basic level, quite often no. What needs to come into that thinking is the reality that actually my cost base may actually be the same, but I might get other benefits such as reduced future costs of change. I might get all of my regulatory change going forward for free or as part of my ongoing license cost. Um, or I might just be getting access to, to better, more innovative technology, which is going to enable me to look for other efficiencies through my process. So I'd say they're probably the, the kind of the three key themes, I think, around why it's been difficult to get off the ground. Yeah, like I, I can understand those. I've also encountered uh, a number of internal IT people with like, no, that thing that you're after there, we can build it so much better and cheaper ourselves. And you know, the, the truth is generally that they can't. Um, now to something that I dubbed the consortium conundrum. So wholesale banking, we need a lot of this so-called financial market infrastructure to deal with all things settlement. So we get forced to interact multilaterally, bilaterally. It's something that's quite unique to banking. I think telcos have a, a similar, though a, a narrower challenge um, in sort of slight interoperability. So we need infrastructure, we need standards. And yet, unless there's a hard date from the regulator, we tend as an industry to struggle um, with doing things together. I think a recent example would be the uptake of a utility like Swap Agent for unclear swap trading, which struggled to get traction. What are the challenges here as we as we face externally and try and find you know, better ways of doing things? I think a big part of the challenge is really being able to explain internally to the organisation the real value of, of probably all of the different types of market infrastructure and what they can what they can deliver to your business model. I think going after a small piece on an individual basis quite often doesn't necessarily deliver the, the type of impact that would enable it to get the priority or focus within an organisation. And, and I would agree with you. I think swap agent as a concept, where I'm able to get the benefits from a processing perspective of effectively being able to move into a CCP star model, albeit it isn't a CCP, but obviously the operational benefits are there. It should be quite a should be quite a, an obvious sell. But the reality is being able to engage the business around being able to get their sponsorship to help drive some of this forward. And quite often there is internal costs of change. You know, we live in a world of where you know APIs are supposed to have made integration very, very straightforward and simple. But the reality is, you know, you have a significant cost of integration or being able to adopt, you know, what look even like relatively minor or small changes to services. So I think that part of it, that part of it is a challenge. I think there's clearly, you know, there's the pieces that the FMI or the market infrastructure providers won't sell for you. As we all know, quite often the 80-20 rule or the 90-10 rule, you know, we can sell for the 80, but the 20 is still quite a significant cost. And it's being able to understand how to blend market infrastructure with a solution for those parts of the process as well. Yeah, and again, that could be another market infrastructure provider. 
could be some fintech or could be some different types of automation. Being able to bring the picture together is important. Um, and I think, as I kind of touched on earlier, the integration piece, you know, most organizations are still running quite complex architectures. You know, we've seen an example recently of an organization who, you know, it was going to take them over a year just to be able to integrate to a, a FMI's API, which again should be quite straightforward from what we hear in the marketplace around how easy or how innovative the technology world has become. But the reality is that's quite hard. Banks still have large amounts of mandatory work they're doing. It could be regulatory change. It could be regulatory tidy, tidy up. And as you know, in a world of limited investment spend, it can be quite hard to justify the ROI on spending money on something such as market infrastructure adoption, where you're not able necessarily to put very hard, tangible numbers against it. And then I think the final point is quite often to, to really maximize the value of a lot of these tools that are in the industry. And it could be kind of market infrastructure. It could be new innovation or it could be smarter tech. You, you really need to have a, a real front-to-back performance-led focus on what you're trying to achieve. And that is a very different way of operating, actually, to the way that most banks organize, are organized now. You think about how most operation functions are driven, very, very heavily focused on uh, risk indicators or control metrics. You know, there isn't what I would see the level of process maturity that you may well see in another industry. You know, let's think about manufacturing, let's think about making cars. So that real focus around having the right measurement points to track your industry adoption, to be able to price the cost of putting a trade through market infrastructure versus doing it bilaterally, being able to charge and bill that back to your front office business units or even onto their client, even onto their clients, and to drive that type of behavior just doesn't exist. And I think the preoccupation for the last decade was really regulatory compliance and getting direct costs out of the organization. I think we will start to see in this decade organizations moving much more into that type of mindset where we're realizing that unless they can really measure and monitor and drive performance for adoption of these types of services, they're going to really struggle to be impactful around their cost base. And as you know, the costs, the obvious costs are people and efficiency ones around market infrastructure. But as you start to bring in things such as capital, collateral optimization, all of those other, what I would call second order benefits to better process. You can monetize the value of doing that. You're going to make quite a material uh, impact to your business case. Yeah, I think you're right there with the comment about the mandatory stuff you have to do versus the discretionary budget, because that once you get to discretionary, if you need 15, 20 banks in a consortium for something or other, they're all making very different judgments. And in the absence of a date, they're like, mm, not quite sure when we're going to get to that one, um, which gets me neatly on to what will be the last topic for today. With you. So DLT and blockchain, of course, big buzzwords of the moment. The industry is expecting that with some widespread use of blockchain, we can get some pretty big savings. Um, I think Accenture did what I call the seminal paper on this and said, hey, across the industry and wholesale banking, um, there's $8 billion to be saved across the industry. This from their 2018 paper, Banking on Blockchain. Now, so far, we've had very little live production. I wonder whether we should be disappointed, optimistic, cautious. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, look, as, as we know, change within this industry does take time. And I do think that where 
a lot of the the focus for DLT or blockchain, whichever label you want to use, uh, initially started on was actually around market infrastructure level. It was looking at CSDs, looking at those parts of the, the banking plumbing system where clearly there was a lot of obvious value from consolidating onto a single view of or a golden source, if you like, of of, of, uh, of trade activity. Um, but changing that part of the inf- uh, changing that part of the capital markets is really hard. You know, infrastructure change, unsurprisingly, has a really really kind of slow pace to it, and and that's probably for good reason actually. When you think about the systemic risk that appears when you start to make those types of transformational changes in those layers, so I think there's a there's a recognition that the complexity of the processing infrastructure can make change slow. I do also think that where we are now is there seems to be a much clearer narrative around the blockchain word. So I think my observation of five years ago was quite a lot of confusion between crypto assets, uh, crypto securities, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, blockchain. People would use those words interchangeably and it created quite a high degree of confusion around actually what the future could look like. I think there's a a much sharper narrative now from some organisations um, certainly one I can recall talking to a large custodian who has been very, very clear that what DLT as a technology solution gives them is a fantastic, sorry, fantastic recoverability around their core custodial services. And that's the reason they're using it. No other fancy buzzwords, but it's purely around that play. And I'm, I recall talking to the guys at Settle and they have a similar view. If you talk to them about recoverability, within a set of market infrastructure or where you're providing kind of wholesale services to people, the, the impact is quite significant. So I think people have understood the technology and what it can bring. As you know, Olaf, you know, when you start thinking about how much money is spent reconciling bilateral trade portfolios across the globe, across the capital markets, it is going to be an astronomical number. It's probably more than $8 billion. And, and where solutions can come in and take some of that cost away, I think they will be impactful. Because I think we're then moving through a maturity cycle around where we've got the initial excitement and buzz around some new tech. We're now moving away from it being more of a toolkit and more actually being applied to specific business problems. And I would say if you look at some of the things that are happening in the FX based, you know, you look at the likes of COBOL, you look at the likes of Batten systems, you know, they are now bringing out quite narrow, quite niche solutions to the FX market that are quite clear to understand and it's quite clear around how they can be impactful. You know, so as an example, you know, if I've got multiple FX participants and I can reconcile all of their trade activity within a single DLT type framework, that clearly has value because we're all looking at the same same information. So I think that as we're starting to see real business solutions coming out to solve business problems, I certainly start to see, I think, uh, an, an increase in interest around that. HQLX would be another interesting one as well. I know you're familiar with those guys, but what they've been able to do around uh, mobility of what typically was quite has always been quite a challenging intraday process around managing collateral and not being stuck with a fail end of day. Again, you know, you can very clearly see the value there, and I think where they're getting traction is they're able to sell that to people who can understand some of the challenges. So I think over time, we will see a, a kind of pace of change. I think that the large-scale disruption at a market infrastructure level, and let's think about CSDs as an example, um, I think that may well take longer. 
but I think that is purely just due to the complexity and the systemic risk associated with it. Much harder to change that. Maybe it is a bilateral relationship between two or three counterparties. But I do think that will happen because I think as what we are starting to see clearly, you know, distributed ledger technology rather than blockchain is really going to be able to be quite impactful, I think, about solving a lot of the legacy costs that the capital markets post-trade world currently carries. All right. I'm with you. I'm uh... I'm an optimist too, and I think there's a, there's a there's a both potential and and a lot to look forward to in doing that. I think we'll wrap up. Thanks very much for coming on the show and sharing your insights today, James. Infrastructure and operations are so important to wholesale banking, so it has been great to have you as a guest. Uh, given that you think very widely about all of these things, you can find more out on James on LinkedIn. Just put in James Maxfield and Ascendant. Or you can find him via the Ascendant website at ascendant-strategy.com.